Well, welcome, friends, to another episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We're excited to share this time with you today, and we're excited about a number of things. Excited about our guest. Our guest, his name is Baxter Kruger. He is a PhD. He got his PhD at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he is a theologian, and I particularly think he's brilliant. I love the way Baxter Kruger thinks. He's an author. He's written several books. He is a teacher. He does seminars with people like William Paul Young and Brad Jersak, who you remember from a prior episode, collaborates with a lot of really incredible people. And the way he thinks about God, the way he thinks about the Trinity, the way he thinks about Jesus and our inclusion into the life of Christ and into the life of the Trinity is just beautiful. It's, it's pretty stunning. So we get to talk to Baxter, who is a Scotch fan. Here's the second thing I'm excited about tonight. We get to taste some Scotch. Nice. So our friends at Storehill BKC in Milwaukee supplied us with this really, really wonderful scotch called, and I'm going to do my best here, Akintoshin. Nice. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, seemed right. All right. It is an old distillery, an urban setting in Scotland since 1823 is what they say. Yeah, crafted in Glasgow. Yeah. Glasgow. There you go. There it is. Awesome. And this particular offering by Akintoshin is their three wood offering, and it's a single malt Three wood, they um, age it in a bourbon barrel for, I think, about 12 years. Did you say, mm-hmm. Elliot? Yeah. And then it moves on to something I don't know. A sherry cask. Well, I know that, yeah. And, and then, then another type of sherry cask. Oh, it's another type uh, of sherry. Yeah. So, so the real test here is, can we taste the third barrel? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever offers that note is re- really <laughs> the You can grow. discern between the second and third oh, barrels. for yeah. sure. Yeah. That's, uh, and I will confess, I'm not a scotch... I'm not a scotch connoisseur. I... The peatiness scares me away. It's just too much for me. If into... Now, do we know if this is a peated scotch? Does this is unpeated. So I, I don't know anything about scotch either, and I was insecure enough that I was Googling this, and that's how I actually know <laughs> what I'm talking about this week. <laughs> this is unpeated, uh, and okay. I haven't tried it, obviously, but it's I'm looking forward to after reading about it and hearing about it, especially the unpeated part, because that's usually what puts me off. Mm, okay. That's too bad. All Yo, my same favorite here. scotches are peated, but I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, you're you're the... The wise old Scotch I just need some sage. practice. Yeah. No, this is, yeah, this will probably be a good introduction. Although I've only had Okintoshin like one or two times before and never this version. I don't think I've ever had a sherry finished one, so. Oh, man. I could just smell this all night and be happy. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, there's so much to say already and I've just smelled it. Oh. So much fruit in that nose. Yeah. Dark, dark fruit, plum. Mm-hmm. Almost like cooked fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's sweet. Yeah. A little bit of and yet, cut. Yeah, that you get that sherry in there. Major sherry nose. You can tell it's going to be sweet. All right, I'm oh. just, just going to take a sip. Enough of this. Mm. Yeah. Now, have you guys had any scotch before? Is this your first? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, some. Just, I, it's always, oh, I, don't, man. I don't know what I'm drinking. And yeah. Probably I've had, really cheap stuff. Yeah, I've had scotch a number of times. Pretty good stuff, too. Yeah. And um, I'm going to say this is my favorite scotch I've had because yeah, of the... Yeah, this would un- be an unusual introduction, so I'm glad you've had other stuff first. Mm-hmm. This is really good. So I don't... Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a lowland scotch, which just means it comes from the southern part of Scotland. And I want to say it's the only or one of the only distilleries mm-hmm. in that area. Most scotches are in the highlands or in the Speyside, which is along a river in the east. Uh, or there's a big island off the western coast that makes all my favorite stuff, and that's the really heavily peated, really smoky stuff. 
Uh, so each each region kind of has its own distinctives about it, but Lowland, I'm not sure that, that it has any distinctives. Uh, but this is a really delicious, sweet, uh, complex in all the right ways, not smoky at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It actually reminds me of certain honey, like clover honey, the really dark mm-hmm. kind of honey where, where it's got those deeper flavors. Mm. I get that all over here. Floral. It's mm-hmm. rich. There is but a, it does have that little leathery thing. If you do the thing. Kentucky Chew with it, there's a thing that Scotch has when you do that that bourbon doesn't have. I can't quite put my finger on it. It reminds me of leather. A little bit, yeah. I mean, part of it's just being barley instead of corn. This is delicious. Um, if you are in the Milwaukee area, anywhere around it, go to Storehill BKC and grab this Okentoshin Three Wood. It's If you're not a scotch drinker, this is the gateway drug. I'm telling you, this is <laughs> this is the thing to get. Thumbs up for Okentoshin, huh? Heck yeah. It's part of the Trinitarian tradition, you understand, scotch. Because in Scotland, you play golf in the, in the wind and the rain and the cold, and you come in and you refresh yourself. <laughs> and, then, and then you study theology all night. <laughs> perfect, perfect. That's well, awesome. Baxter, thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to chat with you tonight. My pleasure. I love it. Uh, it's a beautiful time. Uh, right now in history, notwithstanding all the stuff that's going on with COVID and all the the breakdowns and all of that, but looking at this from a historical and spiritual perspective, I am very excited about what's happening. Can you, for our listeners who might not know who you are, Baxter, can you just give them a little bit of background, where you're from, your education, your your work? Well, I grew up in South Mississippi in a place, a little town called Prentice, a thousand people. Um, and we loved, uh, we, we, we hung with everybody. There wasn't enough people to have any kind of social gradation or thing. We just hung out with everybody, which has proven to be really helpful to me because, and my dad pointed this out to me not long, I mean, three or four years ago, he said, your capacity to communicate comes out of that, where you were, you were talking to everybody, so you learned to communicate with everybody. So you're never, ever content to just go, you know, and stay up in the lofty, ideas which is important but that's the point is to bring those ideas down to where people live um so that from there i went to university of mississippi i grew up in a calvinist church uh, memorized the catechism 13 year perfect sunday school attendance pen brother um and our pastor i mean he's still the pastor of the church he's he's been there for 50 years and he's a, a a wonderful man uh faithful um in terms of his commitment to his community and family and all that, and I'm very grateful to him. Um, I, I disagree with him in his Calvinism, but I, I'm very grateful to him because every single sermon, every Bible study, everything he ever did was very theologically informed and challenging, and uh, it really just you know, called us forth, and we had to think. And, of course, my dad being a lawyer and then a judge, and both of my older brother and my younger brother turned out to be lawyers, and my mother was the smartest one in the whole room. Um, it was a thinking environment, uh, and a biblical, and we learned the Bible and I knew the Bible it was taught in Sunday school and church. And, and then I went off to college, the university of Mississippi and have, and had what we would call a large time and uh, <laughs> ran aground, uh, in terms of, um, I, I mean, at the end of every party, I knew I would be walking in this little field behind the dormitory, which is now, 
uh, parking lot, uh, but I would walk back behind the dormitory crying out to God, this, this, there's more, there's got to be more. Jesus, you're more. I, I, knew, I knew it. I just didn't know how to get to it. And one thing led to another, and I got involved in, in campus ministries and then uh, ended up getting married and went with seminary. And then I you know, really discovered theology in earnest. Uh, uh, not, not the reform stuff, uh, the conservative, uh, narrow conform stuff, but the broader reform tradition, which is Bart and the Torrance brothers, and uh, that larger conversation, and mm, just blew my mind. But by then, I was pretty pretty well steeped in Athanasius. Uh, funny story: when I was a senior in college at, at Ole Miss, and uh, took me forever to realize how I even knew who Athanasius was because nobody ever talked about that. But uh, I went to the library at the University of Mississippi and checked out um, Athanasius's little book. It's right up there above everything I do called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. And they had a copy, and it had never been checked out, of course. I read it, but it, it just, man, he, he in, in, chat, in section six, this is the quote, um, what then was God being good to do when his creation was on the road to ruin? And I, I just, I, I, oh, my goodness. I mean, he sees God not as good on Monday but as good, and his intentions for us are un, almost unimaginable. And we botched it, and he's not, he's not throwing up his hands going, man, I knew. He's, what then is this character, this God, who flung the worlds into existence and loved us from eternity, what's he to do when we botch it? Well, he throws all in. And then earlier, or not earlier, but in an equal uh, companion book that goes along with that, which Athanasius wrote when he was in his 20s, um, and um, it, it was called Against the Gentiles. Um, and, and in that, he says, the God of all is good and supremely noble by nature. And this, again, this is not on Monday and Tuesday. This is who God is, noble, good. Therefore, the God of all is good and supremely noble by nature. Therefore, he is the lover of the human race. And it, it just, I was so eager to find a way around or out of the, the abuses of Calvinism. Um, but honestly, Arminianism is no, no comparison. So what do you do? Well, I didn't even know there was this thing called the Trinitarian tradition. And lo and behold, uh, I became a fan of Athanasius and read everything and eventually ended up in Scotland to study with J.B. Torrance at the University of Aberdeen and to study... Uh, by then, I had discovered J.B. Torrance's older brother, who uh, Thomas F. Torrance, and that's the two rows of books there. Um, and the fathers, <laughs> church fathers, are pulling top. They kind of oversee everything. And Bart and Calvin are over there, and George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis. And uh, but um, T.F. Torrance wrote thirty books, three hundred articles, reviews, essays, and things. A very uh, prolific writer, uh, but when I read him for the first time, it's the same spirit, the same song. It lit up the song in my heart that I that I had uh, learned from Athanasius, and one thing led me to another. So I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation in the eighties, mid eighties, on the theology of T.F. Torrance, and particularly on his his understanding of knowing God. The way in which we know God is that we actually share in God's knowledge of Himself. That's the, one of the points of the significance of the Trinity, that the one who is face-to-face -face with his Father from all eternity, um, 
this is the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. Well, he became human in order to share with us what he knows, and, and not only what he knows intellectually, but his spirit. So the whole thing was about sharing in, in Jesus' uh, eternal relationship with his Father and Spirit, which blew my mind. I'm like, this is the coolest thing in the world. So I look back now, um, and when I was 10 years old, I had some experiences in church that rocked me pretty good, and I didn't know what they were, but that was all about this. It was just the Lord, the Lord saying to me, um, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And don't, don't settle. Don't settle mm-hmm. for anything other than the authentic freedom. And I'm like a deer in headlights. I don't know what to do, but eventually I look back now and I see how the Lord led me to these great figures and leaders, and they led me back to the early church and to the apostles and, and seeing uh, the heart of the New Testament, the relationship between Father and Son and Spirit. It's the center of the cosmos. You know, that, that's great. What does it mean? <laughs> like... So mm-hmm. I, my life is essentially the unpacking of the significance of that. And that's what I've written on, you know, nine books later, um, essays where I'm trying to uh, dig into and say, this is, we've got atonement backwards. <laughs> Sorry. We just got it backwards. This has never been about an angry God. This is always about a father that loved us and we lost our mind. The purpose of the incarnation is that everything that Jesus knows and has with his father and spirit, he could bring to us and share it with us, and it could be as much ours as it is his by experience. And I, I grapple with that because that's a hard concept to get your brain around if you grew up as I did, you know, in the Bible Belt in Mississippi in the Western tradition. And after Scotland, I was back in the United States. My son is probably seven years old. Uh, oldest daughter, Laura, is five, and Catherine's a baby. And on a Saturday morning, I'm sitting there getting ready to, to uh, sort. I'm sorting through junk mail, getting ready to watch a football game on my couch in my den. And up to my right, I see movement down toward the floor. And I turned and I looked, and there were two camouflage faces with hat, camouflage hat, hats on looking at me. And before I could move, they just jumped into the air like cannonballs and dove in. And we started this mock fight war. And they had, you know, all the camouflage on and their boots and plastic grenades, and all the politically incorrect stuff that we, anyway. And we ended up in this mock battle, and then we ended up in a ball of laughter on the floor. And I'm, I, I get up, and I'm, I got my hands resting on my, on my knees, and I'm breathing heavy, and I look at them, the two of them just laughing, and the, a ticker tape flies across my brain, and my mind, it says, Baxter, pay attention. This is important. And I'm like, well, Okay, it's important. You know, a dad's horsing around with his son and his buddy, you know, on Saturday afternoon. I mean, what's the, it's got to be going on one form or another with mothers and daughters all over the world. And I didn't get it, and it took me a while. But then I began to realize that I actually didn't know this other little boy. I, I, didn't, I didn't even know he was in my house. I didn't know his name. Um, and I thought, well, what would have happened if he would have walked into my den turned and seen me on the couch by himself. Because he doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I'm like. He doesn't know how I'm going to respond. But the last thing is going to happen for him to come flying through the air on his own and engage me in that kind of familiarity and play. And, and then, then it began to really dawn on me. I said, but my son knows me. He was there. My son knows that I not only love him, but I like him. And I want to be with him. Just today I was with 
my son and his his own son, James Edward Baxter Kruger Jr. He's about you know seven months old, and I'm like, who who saw this coming? And but I that day I was there, and I and I thought I watched my son's knowledge of me, of my heart, of my goodwill toward him. I saw that go inside that other little boy, and he got to taste and play in our fellowship and our freedom, and it became in that moment as much his as as it was ours. And I just just thought, that's that's the gospel. There's only one person who knows the, 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 the Father, and that's Jesus. And what's he to do when his bride has lost her mind and runs from him? I'm going in, Papa. I'm going to get to the bottom. I'm not having this in my creation. I'm not having my children, not my brothers and sisters, my bride, think this of you. We're going in. And Papa's saying, I got you back, and the Holy Spirit's like, you know I'm not missing out on this. Me and Kyle, in the last few weeks or the last couple of days, read um, one of Baxter's books called Patmos, which is a um, fascinating concept where you um, wrote about a theologian, a just pretty average religious guy who gets kind of, we would say revelation style, beamed into the Isle of Patmos 2,000 years ago and just gets to spend three days with the Apostle John, John the Revelator, no less. And uh, some fascinating conversations, and it's just a really fun, creative way to introduce John's theology and introduce maybe a different way of of seeing uh, the gospel in a more original early church sort of way, right? So you did a number of things that we've got some questions for you in that book, but it's a really fun, just theological, uh, it's, it, it's a put together a the, theology in story form. So it's pretty fun. Kyle, you had the first question, I think, right? Yeah, there's, uh, there's several things you do in the book that I'd like to ask you about. One thing that occurs kind of early on is uh, John refers to the Holy Spirit as she, uh, which is a practice I've been I've adopted um, several years ago when I read my first feminist theologians, <laughs> and uh, it, I think it has changed the the way I view God just just that simple little tweak. Uh, but the the character in the book that's the theologian is like shocked by it or whatever. Um, so why did you choose to put that in there? Was there a personal experience that was behind that decision to include that in the book? Tell us about tell us about why that's in there. Well. Yes, there's there's a lot there's a lot to it. When I was growing up, the Holy Spirit was referred to as the Holy Ghost. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the way it's used in the King James Bible. It's that's the way it was used in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed that we used, and in most of the hymns. Um, and if you just stop and think about it, a twelve year old little boy doesn't want to hang around with a ghost, let alone a holy one. Um, so there's a real disconnect for me personally from the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'm functioning from memory here, but I think that there are 200 references in the Hebrew Bible to uh, Ruach, or, uh, which can be translated breath, wind, or spirit. And of the 289, uh, generally, there's always scholarly debate about these things, but Generally, 89 times refers to the Holy Spirit. Of the 89, 80 times is feminine. Uh, And followed, I think, 45, 44 times, something like that, by feminine verbs. So 
the very second verse in the, in the Bible, Ruach, feminine, spirit, uh, all through the, one of the ones that blew my mind was all through the book of Judges when the, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon, you know, it's all feminine. I wasn't taught that. I didn't learn that until I started studying Hebrew, but even then nobody made anything of it. And then there's the fact that Jesus spoke Aramaic in both Hebrew and in Aramaic to this day. Ruach is feminine. So, you know, my question is, why haven't we ever been told this? Um, because it seems to me to be a rather large thing. And it's really when you discover the Trinity and the importance of it that you begin to see that, and I don't want to say that the Spirit is the feminine part of God and God the Father is masculine, but I think masculinity and femininity are part of the divine being all the way around. But I do think that the Holy Spirit um, is um, is referred to in feminine ways on purpose. Um, and I think there's something beautifully healing about that. And to discover that this has been a part of the tradition all the way through the church, it didn't, it didn't become the big thing, but it's always been there. Yeah. I love um, the extensive use in, in the book referring to the Holy Spirit as she and her um, for two reasons, two main reasons. One, it personalizes the Holy Spirit, because I, if if I have to hear another person call the Holy Spirit it, I'm going to lose my mind. It's I, I, when, when the Spirit is it, it doesn't mean a whole lot, and you can't get to know an it. But when you personalize the Spirit, then all of a sudden you can have a relationship with that person. And then I desperately am at a point in my life where I need to see the feminine life within the Godhead. Um, I can't I can't deal with all the male pronouns anymore. I can't deal with the, the overly um, masculinized version of God that we have. And this is a beautiful way in to see. It's, it's not only like, it's not wishful thinking, it's right there in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is referred to as a she. It's you're not doing any any crazy liberal jumping jacks to get there and jumping through hoops. It's just there. We didn't see it for whatever reason, probably intentional, right? Um, and now we get get to see this beautiful femininity within the Godhead, which was already there. But when you open yourself to that, there's something deeply healing. And I think that's where you said where you were spot on when you said particularly for men. I know for women in different ways, but I just need to see the beautiful feminine life within the divine Godhead. And this is a beautiful way to do that. I was driving down the road one day on my way to Nashville, Tennessee, and I was right outside of Jackson, Tennessee, on the interstate. Just me, I was by myself driving, and and um, this sense came over me, and I, I was like, "What? what's going on? And I, I couldn't quite make it out, and I wrestled with it as I drove up the road, and I finally... It finally dawned on me that I was not only in that moment experiencing the Holy Spirit's joy, I was experiencing the Holy Spirit's enjoyment of me, which is like, mm -hmm. what? I'm broken. Mm -hmm. I'm a mess. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not yet earned a spot. And once you see how God really is, that... Uh, he never designed us to be perfect. He never designed us, the Father, Son, and Spirit never designed us to be wise, never designed us to be righteous, never made us to be good. They made us to participate in their perfection. 
in their goodness, in their righteousness, in their wisdom. We're the ones that turn from that to try to create our own. But they are the ones who meet us as their children, broken and, you know, sometimes I just think stupid as I am. Meet us in that and delight in perfecting it. Transforming it into something beautiful and good and right. Even when we're trying to pretend that we already are, we got Bible verses and we're part of the right church to prove that, you know, so there's a tremendous freedom uh, in that. I, I like to tell a story about uh, a carpet weaver and his uh, six-year-old granddaughter that he adores, and she adores him. And she he's like the best carpet weaver in the world, and she's pestering him for a year. You know, Pops, when are you, you going to let me make a carpet with you? And so on, his, on her seventh birthday, he presents to her two of his own favorite needles, and shows her how to make two or three stitches and sets her up on one end and off she goes. And she's making a carpet. Doesn't even know what a carpet is and doesn't make a single correct stitch. Not one. And he so loves her and so adores her and so wise and experienced that he's steadily watching all of her mistakes and he's weaving that in so that when they meet in the middle, it is again a masterpiece because he has woven her mistakes into the overall pattern. And that, that is the Father, Son, and Spirit. They're not standing off waiting for us to figure out how to get it right. They're in the middle of the mess, and they're perfecting it. And it's just like goodness. And so I, I just think it, it's in their times, you know, in your, in your journey where you realize Lord, I hadn't got a single stitch right, and I've been so self-righteous <laughs> in condemning others. Um, and that's when you need the Holy Spirit as mama. And you need to feel her joy. Um, because when we return from our um, escape from our own heart, because it can be painful in the light, uh, but when we return to our own soul, uh the Holy Spirit is just like, it, she's like a mother who has, whose sons and daughters are coming home from college to spend the weekend. Mm-hmm. She can't wait. You know, and that, that, that is so foreign. It was to me. It, I didn't know, but I, I now see that it's foreign to most people's understanding of the Holy Spirit. And um, I didn't intentionally set out to say, say as much about the spirit in the book as it came out. And I, I love it. I love it. Matter of fact, one of my charismatic friends called me up and says, Baxter, you're going to be known as a theologian of the Holy Spirit. Go, go figure that. I said, I said, yeah, and you read the book, didn't you? Go figure. <laughs> mm. yep. It called to mind some sayings of the Desert Fathers that I'm a big fan of about what we would call theosis or what the Eastern Christians would call theosis. Uh, which seems to be a kind of a big theme in your book. You don't use that terminology, but it seems to be something you're after with that Irenaean and Johannine tradition. Um, so what can you explain in a, to, in a little more concrete terms what it means to become what God is in his essence? I mean, the technical term that they used uh, was theosis. Um, that scares the bejeebies out of most Western Christians. But if you go back to the mm-hmm. story of my son and his buddy in the den, that's it. 
It is the experiential life of God. It's the love uh, which is unspeakable in its beauty, um, uh, but that love, that life, that sharedness, that oneness, that perichoretic unity without loss of personhood, um, that creativity is in us, and and nothing. You thrilled. just used a big word there, per- perichoretic. Can you define that? That's the the name of our ministry. It's my favorite theological word because once Jesus said, or once John wrote in his gospel, and Jesus says, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Then from that moment forward, the search is on for a way of talking about that without emerging um, so that, well, Jesus and the Father are the same person. But th- there is two distinct persons. And of course, the Holy Spirit's right there. So how do we talk about that in a way that we guard the distinction and yet we honor the oneness, which is what we're all searching for in every relationship and especially our marriages, uh, to maintain distinction within oneness. Most of the time we end up failing and it's someone dominates the other and the other disappears. Um, it, or it gets enmeshed where you lose yourself. So um, they were searching for that word in Nicaea. They used the word homoousios, topatry, the phrase which means of one being, of the same being with the Father. And then eventually um, they took up a word, uh, perichoresis is the proper pronunciation, or perichoresis, as they would say. Um, and it means uh, mutual indwelling without loss of personhood. Um, um, and and that became this the one word summary of the of the doctrine of the Trinity, if you want to put it that way, which is uh, almost stupid to even say. But uh, it maintains it, it's uh, I create space for you in all of my life, and you don't get lost, and neither do I. But our togetherness is such uh, the togetherness of the Father and the Son is so unclouded. It's so non-religious. There's no fear. There's no darkness. There's light. They're turned toward. They're face to face. They share all things. And the more you try to describe the nature of their togetherness, you just end up with the word one. And then you, comma, but they don't merge so that they're the same person. So that's the, the beauty of it. The whole creation is created in this perichoretic relationship of oneness without loss. Everything is wired that way. Uh, we're all searching for it, and it's really fascinating to me. I don't keep up with physics like I, I wish I could. I mean, it's just too much to do, too many things. But um, it's very clear that the whole world of physics is searching for the concept of perichoresis because they, 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 they see that everything is of a piece, and yet... I'm not you, you're not me, you're not a rock, I'm not a tree. I mean, but there's a a deep and profound connectedness with creation um, and and a union there without loss. So uh, that's the main main theological point in the story is union. As John is raising the question again, again, union or separation. You either assume that you're separated from God, the Father, Son, Spirit, and therefore we got to get back so somebody tell me how to do it, the birth of religion, or you understand separate, uh, union, and now you're trying to experience this. So John is helping Aiden sort through that because 
the point of the theological clarity is not that John that Aiden would get a gold star in theology. The point is that he would begin to suspect that Jesus is in him. So that's the main story of the book is that Jesus, um, that, that Aiden is going to discover and encounter Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father because they're indivisibly one inside of his own scuba. He's never looked there because he was always told he tried. He had to. He had to become accepted by cleaning himself up. And what lo and behold, he discovers that that they love him as he is in his brokenness. So he gets to meet the Father, Son, and Spirit in the things and in the places in his own soul where he's most ashamed of himself. So I had a friend one time that that came to me and said that he was struggling with panic attacks. And we were sitting on my back patio, and, and uh, he said, I don't know what to do. He said, I quote the Bible verses. I pray. I, I just don't, I don't, I can't beat it. And I said, well, I'm panicked. I'm the Holy Spirit. you got to give me something because I don't, I don't, I don't want to make anything up. Not here, not at this point, not with this problem. And he, and so the Holy Spirit he told me, he said, uh, when you drive, because this would come to him mainly when he would get driving, when he would drive his car. Um, and I said, so when you leave here going back home and this happens, I want you to pull over all the way as far as you can on the right side of the road, hit park, take the keys out, throw them in the floorboard on the passenger side and say, all right, bring it on. Bring it on. I want to see your teeth. What you got? We're going to duke it out right here. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And he said, he called me back on the phone. 10, 15 minutes after he left, he said it happened. I pulled over. He told me where he was. I knew exactly where he was. I could see it with him. And he said, man, the whole world went dark. Actually, I'm falling back in a pit. I think it was a pit. It was just dark. I couldn't see my hands. I just felt that I was falling backwards in, in an unimaginable abyss, and I was gone forever. And he said, suddenly I, I kind of stopped. At least I felt like I stopped. I wasn't on the ground, but I didn't feel like I was moving, but it was pitch black dark and I, he said you're not going to believe what happened I said well what happened he said I turned to my right and there sat Jesus I said yeah that's the gospel we're, we're trying to perform to get in by being good which is bullshit excuse me uh, scuba <laughs> he's met <There> us <laughs> he's met us in our crap and we're performing you got to meet him at the place that scared you to death your whole life. And that's what's called, and knowing the truth shall set you free. Who gets a vote in that place? Your mom, your dad, your church? Who gets a, nobody gets a vote in that place. Jesus is, the, yeah, this, I, I am what's at the bottom of your being and the bottom of your crap. Help us understand that. So one of the questions I put on the outline was, um, what does it mean to say that Jesus dwells in our sin. So you use the word flesh a lot in the book, but you do eventually get around to using the word sin too. Um, how, how, how is that possible? And I'm asking it in two senses. I'm asking it in the spiritual formation sense, but also in like the metaphysics. <laughs> like, what does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit indwells my flesh? Or Jesus. Okay, this is, this is basic Christology. And this is really important because you're asking a question that is answered on two levels. One is the conceptual and the other is the, the experiential. So at the conceptual mm -hmm. level, 
the, the brothers and sisters of the early church realized that we are staring a mystery in the face. We cannot explain it. We cannot define it, but we're going to defend it. The mystery is this. The one who is face to face with his father from all eternity, which is a mystery, and is God, but not the father, which is a mystery. This one who is anointed in the Holy Spirit became a real human being without ceasing to be divine. Don't know how to explain that. That's a mystery. We're holding it together. This happened. We believe it. We know that Jesus is God. We know that he's human. And lo and behold, John says, Matthew says, Emmanuel, which means God with us. John says the word became not anthropos, which is human, man, but sarx, which is flesh, which is not good. It's our humanity twisted. So word becomes flesh. No way to explain how that can be. How can the one who is face-to-face with his father enter into the place where he can't see his father's face? Don't have an answer, but that happened. That's what we hold on to. This is the mystery of the faith. It's what the Apostle Paul you know, calls the mystery of godliness. Well, the Apostle Paul goes even further. He not only says that, that the son became anthropos, human, or sarks, flesh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, he made to be sin. How, how does that? Don't know. But the logic of it is identified and stated by Gregory Nazianzen when he said that the unassumed is the unhealed. So if all he became was human, that's beautiful. But that doesn't help me or you because we're more than human. We're twisted human. But if all he came, became is twisted human, that helps. But that doesn't get to the root. The root is what the Apostle Paul is saying. So I liken it to um, uh, miners that are down in the earth, and the mine collapses. So they bring in a surface rescue team that sets up shop on the surface. But suppose the rescue team never goes down and makes contact with the the, the miners that are in the collapsed mine. There's no rescue. Or suppose that they get all the way down to the bottom and they see them, embrace them, and they give them oxygen and food, but then they get trapped. They lose contact with the surface crew. So they're just as lost. So it's necessary that both mysteries be held. All this is held together in the person of Christ. And this is what we adore. And Hillary said that the, the heretics force us to scale perilous heights, to strain the poor resources of language to say what cannot be said with words when faith is perfectly content to sit and wonder at this. But we have to talk about it because of the heretics. So they're saying that this is the mystery. Christ in you, not just anthropos, not just sarks, but Christ in you, the sinner. Christ in you at your deepest worst. And he brought his Father and the Holy Spirit with him. How? Don't know. We we'll never figured that out. That's just the mystery of the, the goodness and the overflowing love of God. But the, the closest I know to come to that in human terms is is a, is a father. Um, I can't think of anything I wouldn't do for my children. And now that I have grandchildren, I'm like, just you know, take me. Um, and I know that 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 has to be the love of God inside of me that pales in comparison to the. The fullness. So the mystery of godliness is there. How can God become human without ceasing to be God? Don't know. 
Arius, you know, well, it can't be, can't happen. So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Arius says, how can these things be? Athanasius says, the Arians are like the Sadducees of old. When they hear that the Son is the wisdom and the radiance and the word of the Father, they are accustomed to rejoin, how can this be? As though nothing can be unless they understand it. So there you see it, is that you have people with mindsets that want to clamp it down and say, God, whatever you are, you've got to fit inside my mindsets. The early church is saying, you got to blow them, blow my mindsets. I know this. I've met Jesus, and he's the Father's eternal son. How do I explain that? I don't know. I worship it. I love it. I adore it. I'm safe there. And so that's the theological significance of what you're saying. On a practical, you know, experiential level, um, when Jesus says, after he fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, he says, gather up the fragments, see that nothing is lost. And John typically speaks on multi-levels, but that's one of them. I want all of Baxter. I don't want just the Sunday version. I want all of him and all of you and all my sheep and all my, my bride. So I'm going into the very bottom where there's nothing beyond that. And to me, the very power of the gospel is when you can... Look at, I don't care if it's 10,000 people or five or one, when you can look at a human being and say, let me, let me tell you. And this happened in the story of Patmos. Uh, Aiden had already met Jesus. He'd already encountered Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he still didn't know that that encounter was inside of himself. And he still didn't know it was inside of his crap. There is no freedom from your bondage until you meet the Father, Son, and Spirit in it. Because it's like, I don't have to hide, I don't have to pretend, I don't have to perform. They love me, and they're content for you to park right there and, and just be loved. So the experiential side of this is there is not a place in the dark world of sin. There is not a plate, there is not a thing you could do wrong that Jesus hasn't entered into there with his Father and the Holy Spirit, and he can meet you there, and you can have a new life right there. This is not about cleaning mm -hmm. yourself up. I get so mm -hmm. bored and tired with that. You, you know, somebody give me a Bible, let me walk in the church and act like everything's just fine. No. Man, we're a mess. Mm -hmm. We're just a broken mess. I don't even know how to spell life. I used to could tell you how to live it. I don't even know <laughs> I don't even know what eternal life is except knowing the Father. Well, I don't know how to get there from where I am. Jesus does. And he says, Take mm -hmm. sides with me, Baxter. Mm -hmm. I'm leading you. I'll lead you. Mm -hmm. I'm doing so both of those together uh, without the mystery, without taking the mystery to its dirtiest place. This is offensive to the to the fallen mind. But nevertheless, the word of God became flesh. He who knew no sin became sin. Praise God for the apostles testicular fortitude to write that down for us. Because, <laughs> because it means that there's no part of me that's left out. And I don't have to hide that part and pretend it's not there. I can bring that to Jesus and say, can you fix this? Mm -hmm. Can you, mm -hmm. can you, I can't, I don't even know how, Jesus, my, my inner world is like a box of loose coat hangers. And I used to be sure I could fix it. I don't even know which one to move first now. And I'm done with religion. Can you fix it? And he's the, he's the mm -hmm. 
You're still looking for me up at the top of the box. We're down here. Come on, come on down here. You see, it frees the the human person. Uh, if you in in um, most people that go to therapy go to therapy to find out what's wrong with their partner, and and most people refuse to go to something like that because they are terrified to look inside the garbage can stuck over in the corner of their soul. Because if they look in there, they're convinced they're going to find nothing but irrefutable proof that they are no damn good. That As my dad used to say to me, born trash, you die trash. As my church used to mm. say to me, you're totally depraved. If I look in that mm-hmm. garbage can, I'm going to find irrefutable proof. And now I'm standing before God with my garbage can open and nowhere to hide. So I'm going to pretend somebody show me how to be religious. Or somebody show me how to. Mm-hmm. But when you hear that the Father in the Son and the Spirit in the Son have submitted to us, has submitted to me and gotten inside of my darkness down to the bottom, and they 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 built their tents, their tent inside of the bottom of my garbage can, which means to me now for the first time, you mean that's not the deepest truth in my being? The deepest truth in my being is the Father, Son, and Spirit's union with me. And I can look in there, and I can begin to build from that place. Then nobody gets a vote. Shame doesn't get a vote. Evil doesn't get a vote. Husband, wives, divorce, finances, nothing gets a vote on how we feel about ourselves. We now know how God feels about us. And we've, mm-hmm. we've discovered mm-hmm. it in that place. Or you can live your entire life up here on this level, pretending none of this is going on, and we're just going to go do church and smile. And mm-hmm. fortunately, we've come to a yeah. place in human history where that doesn't work anymore. And mm-hmm. the gospel is being proclaimed. It's being recovered and proclaimed. And Wow. Probably the major theme in the book is union and separation. The Apostle John is getting after that all the time in your book. And you talk about how the in the incarnation, the incarnation happened to bring us into union with God and that that union with a divine life is what everything is always about. And everything Everything around us is all about union with God. And so how has this idea of union with God and all things being connected changed the way you see and interact with the world? It, it changes the way I see every person. The recognition, let me, let me give you one of my little mantras. The recognition of the sacred presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in every person moment and place is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of freedom to embrace people in life in their union with the Father, Son, and Spirit, whether they know it yet or not. So it is radically altering the way I see myself, the way I see every person, especially those that are unlike me, that I would probably be you know, called enemies before. So that's it. Begins with the Trinity and our inclusion. I, I want to be clear, and this is a place of development for me in, in my journey. Um, the incarnation doesn't mean that Jesus is coming to establish a relationship with you or the human race. He has that. You're, crea- mm-hmm. you're created in him. You live and move yes. and have your being in Jesus. All mm-hmm. things came into being through him. And apart from him, not one thing came into being. He's not coming to establish a union with you or a relationship. He's coming to establish that existing union and relationship inside of our delusion. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Uh, that is yep. a huge difference in point. Yeah, entering into relationship with God is not something that we can do because it's already there. So good. It, conversely then, Baxter, speaking of separation, um, you obviously have some issues with Augustine and his theology and where where Western uh, the Western Church went in re- because of Augustine. Give us your snapshot of separation and how it entered into the church and perhaps through Augustine. It didn't enter through Augustine. It came uh, really from Adam. It's there in Genesis when uh, the evil one says, God knows that you will become wise. Well, whoever told him they would be wise, and, and he said, you will be like God. Well, I thought they were creating an image and likeness of God. So he's suggesting assume a separation then take action to fix it. That's the fall. Uh, that's also built into the fabric of the Greek philosophical mind, which in, um, Augustine inherited through Neoplatonism, and he was not able to extricate himself. And even Calvin says that that Augustine was excessively addicted to the philosophy of, of Plato uh, or Neoplatonism. So uh, there's so much that I have great respect for Augustine on, but man, when you boil it all down, it comes to this. You either assume you're separated from God and have to get back, or you assume union, and I start seeing everything different. Let me let me uh, let me throw in an interjection here, just real quick. So, um, in interpreting Genesis in in the way that you just did, and attributing something similar to Augustine and saying that's what the fall is, reminds me of um, a philosopher of religion that I respected, a guy named John Hick, um, and he he wrote a book in which he argued that you could trace two lines of thought from early Christianity, one through Augustine and one through Irenaeus. And he actually argued for a reading of Genesis that didn't include a fall. Uh, he called it an Irenaean reading. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts about that are. Is it actually an Augustinian reading to see a fall in Genesis? Yeah, yes, you're right. I'm with Irenaeus in, re- in, in the, this book. He, he develops the thoughts about, you know, it's beautiful. Um, so it's it's not a, a a a fall in the sense that you became sinful by nature. Because if you are by nature sinful, broken by nature, then that's an ontological statement. Uh, good luck on fixing yourself. Um, so Irenaeus is more in the world of blindness and assumptions and not seeing and how we respond and react to not seeing in our blindness. And, um, so Adam and Eve hid. They hid themselves in the bush, in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, from God, who had created them and given them with all this. And, and it's like, and they thought they were right. And they thought they needed to hide and they needed to run. And they had already invented a false deity that's got nothing to do with the Father, Son, Spirit. Not really, but it's true to them. And by God, they're going to create a religion and go with it and pilfer and destroy the earth. And we're going to follow in suit because we grow up in that darkness without knowing any better. The light of the gospel shines and is at work to overcome that. That's not a by nature uh, problem. And it's very dangerous to tell people. Like when my... My first grandchild, Caroline, was was born, uh, and I got to baptize her. Um, I quoted that statement at the beginning of um, 
that uh, the recognition of the sacred presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit in, in every person, moment, and place is the beginning of wisdom. And I said, my point is that Caroline does not have her family of origin in the union of Kyle and Laurel. That's the proximate cause of her being. Her family of origin is the Father, Son, and Spirit. And they don't do trash. This is good. It gets twisted, but it's good. We are good. Um, and we're good with the goodness of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus has come to find us in the place where we he's come to find Leah and give her a new interpretation on the dress and on her mom and everything else and lead her out of her darkness into the experience of her father, her true father. Oh, yeah, that's a big, big... You know, you already know the answer to the question. But it's a big problem. I mean, I grew up in Calvinist Church, man. It's a matter of doctrine. We're totally depraved, every one of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you tell a 10-year-old little boy that he's totally depraved and hope he's going to turn out doing anything right. He's just going to live out of it. Well, I, I can't fix that. I mean, no, you tell you tell a child that they belong to the Father, Son, and Spirit, they always have and always will, and they're being told lies, and they're free to live out those lies, but they don't have to. And let's live in the truth. It's, so that, that's a, it's a huge Western issue there. And the Orthodox, which is which Irenaeus represents, of course, it, they don't have that same vision. And they look at us. I one time I asked an Orthodox uh, leader, I said, "How do how do Orthodox Christians look at quote unquote North American evangelicals?" And he said, <laughs> "He said we see you as a Christian sect, and we <laughs> we hurt for you because you believe that the Father had to be bought off." Mm. <laughs> it it helps to read widely and yep. have conversations yep. outside of your own little club. Amen. <laughs> so I saw a quote, I think two days ago by St. Bonaventure that made me think of you. And in this quote, Bonaventure in the 13th century, he spoke of the eternal generation of the son as the eternal art of the father. Here's the quote. He said, it is the in the eternal art from which and through which, and in accordance with which, all beautiful things are formed. I'm going to say that again. Bonaventure said, and he's referring to the eternal generation of the Son, it is the in the eternal art from which and through which, and in accordance with which, all beautiful things are formed. Can you just give us a, your brief, brief snapshot on what you think Bonaventure was getting at there? The the difference between being begotten and created is the begotten is an eternal generation thing. There's no time. It's the best that they could do. It's the best anybody's ever been able to do. There was never a time when the Father was alone and just God and not Father. So this is an eternal relationship. Point two is that this eternal relationship of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit is the womb. You said of all good things, Bonaventure said of all good things, it's the womb of everything. Everything comes out of this, and it's baptized in the logic of that love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And you, you add darkness to that, we get twisted. But this is the truth of our being. And we're learning now in the gospel to learn to, to begin to recognize that. Uh, when, you, when you lose the Trinity, and Karl Rahner said this back in the 80s, Roman Catholic theologian, he said, we must be willing to admit that should 
the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false. Uh, the vast majority of religious writing will, would remain virtually intact. So Bonaventure's he's trying to to say no, 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 everything must be Trinitarian. It must have this this beautiful vision of it, uh, of this love and other centered self giving love, um, or mm-hmm. else it's not Christian. Yep. So last quick question here for you, Baxter. Um, in the chapter in which you talk about George MacDonald, which is really fun, um, you're pretty hard on Calvinism, which I don't mind. I, I'm going to be honest with you. It's okay with me. But um, you are clearly come out swinging against some of the doctrine and theology of Calvinism. Give us just snapshots of the issues you have with Calvinism. Okay, here it is. Father, Son, and Spirit is either eternal relationship or it's not. If it is eternal relationship, which it is, then everything that they think, do, act, flows out of their love for one another. Calvinism teaches that before the creation of the world, a vast majority of human beings were rejected by God the Father, and some were loved, and Jesus agreed to save that some, and that the rest of them are going to be on the eternal rotisserie, magnifying the justice of God. And I'm like, well, Wait a minute. There's no split in the Father's being. Unless you can explain to me how the doctrine, and this is a doctrine of reprobation, of rejection, of which is worse than premeditated abortion. But where is that flowing out of the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Is there a mm-hmm. fourth member, a second son, that the Father hates from all eternity? And so, you know, this is reflected... This, no, this, this is the failure to take the Trinity seriously. So in the West, mm. one of our habitual problems is that we talk about the Trinity, but we all know that there's something deeper about God than the Father-Son-Spirit relationship. You with me? Mm-hmm. What is that deeper than? That's what calls the shots, because it's deeper than the Trinity. Well, in Augustine, that deeper was the absolute mathematical sovereignty of God, which got into all kinds of trouble. In the West, in general, it's holiness of God. But notice that holiness is now not even Trinitarian holy. It's not, it's not talking about the, the magisterial love of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's nothing like it in the universe. It's talking about something else. So that's what Calvinism has done to us, is split the Trinity from the being of God. And, and now we've got to think about the being of God and the Trinity. That's why I kept saying at the beginning of our discussion, the God of all is good, not on Monday. Not sometimes towards some. This is character. This is the deepest truth of the divine being is the Trinitarian fellowship and oneness and love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Out of that, they do towards us exactly what they do towards one another, which is self-giving love. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. The, the, the yep. doctrine of God and the think, the think, and I was taught this, and I probably even taught it myself at some point. I'm, I blocked it from my memory, but to think that you would teach that God the Father loves some. Mm. Come on. I mean, for real. And we don't throw mm-hmm. up. And to think that he mm-hmm. turned his back on his own son, and we don't puke mm-hmm. in, in the church pew when we hear that, that's <laughs> just foreign to the character of the eternal being of God, which is back to Bonaventure's point about it eternal begottenness. This relationship is the womb of the creation. There is no God behind the back of the Trinity. So where is mm-hmm. all this coming from? It's coming straight out of Adam, through Greece, through Rome, right to us, and we 
we preach it on Sunday. We don't. I don't. You guys. But it's yep. preached on Sunday yep. as the gospel. It's not the yep. gospel. It's, it's blasphemy. There is no way that you can have a rupture in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the most stable reality in the cosmos. Always has been. Always will be. To quote George MacDonald, as long as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, all is well with the little ones. But mm. you break that relationship, good luck with your religion getting that part of God to love you. God the mm-hmm. Father is not split towards you. When he looks at his Son all and right. says, you are my beloved, that echoes throughout the entire cosmos. That's mm-hmm. what Jesus came to teach us. All right. I love it so much. Last question, Baxter, and this is a doozy. It's a it's a good one. We we actually recorded an episode on the atonement, and um, in your penultimate chapter in Patmos, you do some really really good work on the atonement. I mean, some some really really beautiful concepts and ideas that define the atonement in a way that um, doesn't make you scared for your existence, doesn't make you scared of God. It it shows that the atonement, the cross, needed to happen where God needed to to dive into the depths of the human experience and human human brokenness and failure and sin and all of the ugliness in order to inhabit it and 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 heal it give us your picture of the atonement we we have the penal substitutionary theory of atonement we have others we have we have a number of others but what you wrote in there needs to be made public and and preached in the pulpit on sunday mornings lord will it will be um Two quick things. There's an essay that I wrote called God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. And a a new one that's just come out called um, The Mediation of Jesus Christ, where these, my understanding is developed. And I'm working on a a third one on the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, I want to be crystal clear on this. Uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit had a discussion before creation. The Father says, I want them with me in my house face to face and not ashamed. Jesus says, I'll, I'll take care of it. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm in. So that's the beginning of the whole concept of the incarnation and of that. Uh, but the cross is not about Jesus doing anything from the Father. Where was God when Jesus was being crucified? God was in Christ, reconciling the cosmos. He wasn't up there pouring wrath out on the Son, and the Holy Spirit's not freaking out, thinking, which side am I going to take? This Mm. is an act of an indivisible, perichoretic oneness and love from the foundation of the world in which they sacrifice themselves to get inside of our delusion. And the only way to get inside of our delusion is for Jesus to submit himself to the Pharisees' religion, to the empire politics. I will submit myself, and you're going to beat me to death, and you're going to curse me. You are going to damn the eternal word of God in whom you live and move and have your being, and I will let you mm. do it, and my Father will let you do it, and the Holy Spirit will let me let you do it. And in so doing, in my and our submission to you, we are now inside of your delusion, and the Holy Spirit's turning the lights on, and you can't kill them. Kill me again. And so this is about the obliteration of, of the power of death. This is about the defeat of evil's deception. And this is about the light of the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit for us shining in us in our deepest place. And to me, Saul of Tarsus, it, I just love this because three times in Acts, it's narrated uh, Saul's uh, 
well, conversion is narrated. All three times, it's like a light shining external to him, knocks him down to the ground, and he has scales, and you know, you know the story. But in Galatians chapter 1, he says, But God, who set me apart from my mother's womb when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, not to me, as it's translated in several uh, uh, English, but not all. But he was revealed in me. Mm. Saul of Tarsus met Jesus Christ, not external. That would have been a theological argument. He met Jesus mm-hmm. inside of his own uh, soul while he was trying to murder Jesus' people. And that blew his mind. It took him three years to sort through. That's the way this works. Uh, I'm not going to leave Adam and Eve in the bushes and stand outside and try to convince them theologically. I'm going to get inside of their mind. I'm going to get inside of Leah's mind. I'm going to get inside of my bride's mind. She hates me. She runs from cover for my life. She doesn't want me. She doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm going in, Papa. And Papa says, I got you back forever. You know that. So Jesus knows what it's like to go to the place where he cannot see his father. And he cannot feel the Holy Spirit, but he knows that they're real and love him. And he commits himself to them. And he can do. And he's doing the same thing inside of us. He's not saying over here theologically, Baxter, you got to memorize this verse. He's saying, dude, I'm turning the lights on. You're seeing my father with my eyes, and that doesn't make sense to you. What are you going to do about that? Walk with me. So the, the whole idea of God needing to be appeased, or the father needing to be appeased or sacrificed already implies a separation between the father and the son, which is just first order blasphemy. I mean, just come on. I, I Please, write, write it down. Baxter, call it blasphemy. It is. It may be what we grew up with. <laughs> Penal substitution has got nothing to do with the blessed Father, Son, and Spirit and our Creator and Redeemer. Uh, they've come to find us in our delusion. Now, I don't know if you've ever dealt with anybody that was delusional. I, I, I've been to a, a psych ward, and I walked in the room, and there were three nurses in this person, and this person recognized me, and that was it. And then started throwing stuff at me because I would participate in her way of seeing things. And I didn't know what to do. And I, I left there praying and I thought, oh, my God. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah. That's what happened to Adam. He began to think of me and my father like that. And well, I tried to talk to him. I tried to talk to all his people. For a couple thousand years we've had a conversation. They, they wouldn't listen so I'm not going to go and stand up and be a prophet one more time and speak to them. I'm going to go enter into their delusion so that I can be on the inside shining the light. So John 5, and I know we're running out of time, but this is so. John 5, Jesus squares off with the Sanhedrin, and he says, You have never heard the voice of God ever. You have never seen his form. You do not have the word of God abiding in your heart. You do not have the love of God in your heart. You seek the glory that comes from your fellows, and you you do not seek the glory that comes from the one and and true God, and you are unwilling to come to me. And I think in that little paragraph in John 5, Jesus is saying, this is the fall, and I am not a prophet who's come to point this out. I am the word of God in whom you live and move and have your being, and you've lost your mind, and I have come to deal with this. You are unwilling to me. I have come to deal with this. 
You don't have the love of God in your heart. I've come to deal with this. You don't have the word of God abiding. I've come to do. You've never heard the voice of God. I've come to deal with this. So you, John 5, go to John 17. Father, I have made you known to them and I will make you known in order that, get this, the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. He's addressing the problems and he does it by submission to us. The word becomes flesh. He doesn't become flesh by by sinning, he becomes flesh by submitting to us in our delusion. And the Father turns our apostate rejection of his Son into the mercy seat, where he embraces us and says, let me tell you who I am and I've always been and always will be. I am your Father, and I'm doing what fathers do, which is affirm their children in their mess. And the Holy Spirit saying, I'm transforming your temple, the temple of your shack, to use Paul. Young's uh, metaphor, or of your apostasy and rejection into the mercy seat, into the temple where I dwell with all my gifts, and we're going to dance. It's going to take a while, but you really got some bizarre things you believe about the Father and about me, Holy Spirit says, and about Jesus. So I'm, I feel like my life, um, I didn't intend to live it this way. This is what happened, but it's like when I was 10 years old, the Lord was taking my hand through an old sock the sock of Western theology all the way to the end, and then it's just turned and pulled it inside out. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, is that we've been backwards. That's good. It's okay. It's not surprising to the Father, Son, and Spirit. But now it's a new day with new light shining, and the day will come, and I'll end with this, a quotation from our beloved George MacDonald, fellow graduate of the University of Aberdeen. Good souls many will one day be horrified by the things they now believe of God. Mm -hmm. That's coming. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, you alluded to this being a remarkable moment, uh, even exciting. Can you elaborate on that? We can't just leave that. Well, it's a moment where people are scared to death um, and they realize their powerlessness. There's an invisible force at work that could kill us. And we have a bunch of politicians on both sides that have lost their minds, and that makes it all worse, and we don't know what to But uh, that's one layer. Another layer is that um, the Western tradition has been locked in its head, um, disassociated from its heart as, as a rule, and the, the, the gig was who can produce the best theological argument with the most Bible proofs and win the day. And that's what denominationalism's is basically just arguing back and forth with uh, and so we're whatever else we are as a denomination we're out to prove we're right and you're wrong and that's been the whole gig and and it's you know left us all bored and sad but the holy spirit has been steadily changing the question for, within the last 500 years and the question is it's this writ across our culture and this pandemic and other things just fuels it uh, this is the good part of all that I'm talking about or seeing in our culture. Um, the question is not who can produce the best theological argument and win uh, the the victory. The question is who can lead us to experience the life that Jesus Christ promised to us. So you mentioned classes that you're teaching. You mentioned uh, seminars. You mentioned uh, 
essays that you've written, you've mentioned books, you've got even pr- extensive and beautiful prayers that you've written. Where can people find your work, Baxter? They, just go, go to perrycreases.org, and if you can't spell that, just Google Baxter Kruger. <laughs> you can get to the mothership mm-hmm. that way. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's 400 hours of teaching material on our website. There's essays. Um, there's lots of free stuff. And I'm working on the sequel to the Patmos right now. Well, Baxter Kruger, it's been a pleasure, serious pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Bless you, boys. Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please rate and review the podcast before you close your app. You can also share the episode with friends or family members with the links from our social media pages. Gain inside access, extra perks, and more at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. We're so grateful for your support of the podcast. Until next time, this has been a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar.